0: I know I usually save my secrets for the end of the episode, but I'm going to tell you my secret favorite candy. It's Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. It's really Reese's anything. But Reese's Peanut Butter Cups are the thing that I'm like, have I had a bad day? I get these. Have I had a good day? I get these. Chocolate, salty peanut butter, the textures. I love everything about them. Also that there's two. So I'm like, oh, I get this one for later, which is one second later. Anyway, Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. I love you. That's all. If you're me, you can shop Reese's Peanut Butter Cups now at a store near you. Found wherever candy is sold. And I am. Oh, hey, it's that mark that you get on your chin when you're wearing lipstick, and then you take a bite of a giant sandwich. Allie Ward, back with a warm-blooded and informative hour of chuckles uh, that I just can't wait to get to. So just thank you up top to everyone on Patreon who submitted questions for this episode and who supports the show, and to everyone keeping ologies a top science podcast with all of your ratings and your word of mouth and your reviews, which I read on purpose, everyone so that I can pick one, such as this From Cathport, whose review on Apple was submitted in the form of this haiku. Interesting folks, bright lights in their ologies. Dadward, my friend too. Cathport, I loved it, thank you. Also thanks to that one car guy named Frank and Anonymous718 for leaving your first ever podcast reviews and Lizzie's, thanks for dreaming about me next to a campfire. It sounded fascinating. Okay, Mammology. So Mammology comes from the Latin for titties gentle folks. And we're going to get so into that, I can't even tell you. But technically, this is an allergy. It's not an ology. And I only realized that after spelling mammology wrong approximately 1 billion times in a row. So this ologist is a big deal. A TED Talker multiple times a Nat Geo explorer, a longtime science writer and an advocate and a researcher, a professor, a tweeter, an icon, an idol of mine. And I sent my first breathless, very sycophantic pleading message to her in January of 2018, two and a half years ago. And she was on another continent, busy with research. And I had been hoping for a time that I'd be anywhere near St. Louis, and she would have an hour to spare. But time and remote recording finally brought us together. She hails from Tennessee and got her bachelor's degree in animal science at Tennessee Technological University, got a master's from University of Memphis, and a PhD from University of Missouri, St. Louis. She did postdocs at Oklahoma State and at Cornell University. She's currently an assistant professor of biology and urban ecology and mammology at Southern Illinois University in Edwardsville, and is also an organizer of this week's Black Mammalogist Week, which runs September 13th through 19th. So you're definitely going to want to follow Black Mammalogist, BLK Mammalogist on Twitter and get ready. They got Technique Tuesday, they got We Out Here Wednesday, Threatened Mammals Thursday, Forge Friday, Sea Mammal Saturday this week. So there's more info and links up at blackmammalogists.com. There's a link to that in the show notes. Get excited. So we talk about that. We also talk about this biologist work on animals of all kinds, especially the furry, milky ones. And we chat about fieldwork, platypi, furriness, and parenting styles and nipples of every stripe. And I was so excited to talk to her that I honestly was kind of speechless and just starstruck and I just wanted to get out of the way and listen because she's just wonderful and insightful and informative. So please get ready to meet one of the world's coolest professors and mammologists, Dr. Danielle N. Lee.
1: i'm ready set
0: oh yay okay of course i want to talk to you about all these uh warm-blooded furry little creatures first thing i'll have you do if it's okay if you could just say your first and last name so i make sure i pronounce it right and pronouns
1: thank you so my name is danielle in lee and my pronouns are she and her but i also just don't care um okay And and I'll tell you why. So, in the process of doing my research in Tanzania and learning Swahili, there are no gender pronouns in Swahili. Really? Mm -mm. They they don't exist. They just don't exist. Like, because I kept Mm -hmm. asking, and I was I realized that because people who speak English would constantly get their pronouns mixed up. They would say he and she interchangeably. Mm -hmm. And I thought it was oh, it's because they don't know English very well. No, it's because those words are the equivalent. He and she are equivalent and Swahili because he and she don't exist. And so that's why it's just like, so this is all a construct, it doesn't (sighs) matter.
0: That's so beautiful. That's so good to know. And this is the first time I've asked that up top because I had uh, a listener say, "Hey, could you just start asking cuz that kind of normalizes it?" And It uh, does.
1: But I also just realized it's a very English thing. Mm-hmm. It's a very Well, it's a it's a language it's not not just English, but I suppose it also matters in Latin languages as mm-hmm. well. Yeah. But like that's very language specific. This doesn't mean anything in parts of the world where there's no gendered pronouns at all.
0: Oh. That makes my day. By the by, thank you, that queer Yana on Twitter, whose partner goes by they them. Yana says that cis folks can help normalize using and asking pronouns, and that the acknowledgement really means something. And I would never have learned that about Swahili. So, aces. Can you tell me a little bit about um, your research that
1: you that you did in Tanzania? Absolutely. I study giant pouched rats. Mm -hmm. Um, For those who get the reference, Princess Bride, (laughs) Uh I study R.O.U.S.T.S. Rodents of unusual size? I don't think they exist. (laughs) They are large rodents um, that look like rats. They're not rats proper. Um, They look like rodents. They are rodents. They're rat-like rodents. And uh, I'm holding my hands up across my body, but... Anywhere from nose to tip of tail, they can go anywhere from two and a half, one and a half to two and a half to three feet long.
0: Uh, what is, was it like the first time that you saw one?
1: The first time I finally got to see one, I was just like, I can't believe this thing. It's, it's big. It's, it's the size of a cat, like a nice size house cat. Like they're cat size. They're very strong. They're very fast. They are Smart. They are the rats. They are the um, the rats of Nim. We can no longer live as rats. We know too much. Mm-hmm. They are they. <laughs> they no, and I mean that. So the first ones we got, we got a shipment from Ghana. Mm-hmm. and we house them in rabbit cages. Nice place, spacious. That's what we house them in. In hutches, they're that big? Yeah, they're that big. We house them in rabbit cages. They have a lot of dexterity in their hand, like they can grab things very easily. Mm-hmm. And when we get them, we have to process them because they're actually, the you can't, they're not actually allowed in the United States. There's a moratorium on shipping African rodents, and this particular rodent, because in 2003 there was a monkeypox outbreak and this rodent this species is responsible for it so they're they're on the the no fly list Mm -hmm. (sighs) so to get them you got to have all special permissions and you're tracked by cdc and we have to do all these tests and submit them and you have to submit uh saliva swabs to make sure that they don't have monkeypox oof
0: okay i know you're like what's monkeypox And it's a virus. It was first discovered in captive monkeys in 1958. And in 2003, there was a U.S. outbreak that, according to the CDC, involved 47 confirmed and probable cases of monkeypox. They were reported from six states. Sorry, the Midwest it was all you. And all those cases stemmed from prairie dogs, which were infected by Gambian pouched rats that an exotic wildlife importer from Texas brought in. And if you're again, like needing a visual, so these pouched rats, they weigh like four pounds, they average two to three feet long, some not including their tails, and they have kind of big cute pink ears. So imagine like a chihuahua with a long tail and a Mickey Mouse hat, or like a possum, but the rats just imagine huge rats,
1: and I remember when it happened, so I'm assisting the vet who's swabbing the their their back of their mouth, their cheek pouches that's why they're called pouch rats, they have cheek pouches like hamsters, oh, and one of the rats, I swear it looked him dead in the eye, <laughs> and he reached with both hands and he grabbed the swab and he yanked it out of his mouth, oh. And everyone who was there was me, and it was a graduate student, and the vet, and we all looked at each other and said, did anyone else just witness that? That just happened. <laughs> it looked him in his eye and, yank, and looked at oh. him as he yanked it out of his mouth. And <laughs> I will forever remember that. And if, and in my memory, that was the same rat who escaped all He got out of the cage all the time. He always escaped. Oh. Um, they were really good at removing their name cards so that they would Cause at first I in, I apologize now, but I thought it was the animal care cleaning the cages and they forgot to put their name tags back on. Oh no! And I was like, we can't have this. We got to keep the name cards on. And we come to find out it wasn't, it wasn't the staff at all. It was the rats. They were <sighs> removing their own cards. They were removing their own water bottles. We had to change a lot of our protocols and how we, the day to day husbandry of how you we care for them, their mm-hmm. debt, They're that different from regular wrap. We had to change the materials we use. We can't use glass bottles because they're so good at flipping them out. They were breaking these super industrial, expensive Pyrex bottles. Oh my God. Every night they were just breaking them because they would flip them out. And then they would use that little hole to either reach their hand out and undo the cage or for the smaller ones they would move their food hutch because it slide in and then they would use that to escape out.
0: Okay, so I asked what happens when they escape and she said it's not like monkey pox panic sirens go off and there's mayhem. There are double doors for safety but it's certainly like a come on guys moment.
1: So at my last institution where we housed them which was Cornell University part of what we did, we had one that escaped so often like we just got used to it we would just put hutches around the room because what it is is they just go on these little jaunts. They oh. literally would go on jaunts. So we would put just extra little hutches, uh, which is just, it's a mailbox top. So imagine a mailbox thing without yeah. a door. That's their little housing hutch. We would just put a couple of these in the room in the corner. And then when the staff would come in to do the daily checks, uh, they just, you just take a peek in them. And the good news is because there's a handle on top, you could just, if you're very careful, just pick the hutch on up. Open their home cage and put it right back in. Oh. But yes, once we get used to it and they get used to us, they'll go into a hutch. Otherwise, you got to get out there and you got to catch them. Oh, wow. You how, do you, em. how do you catch them? When they're loose like that, mm-hmm. um, I corner them and grab their tail.
0: Yeah. Oh, yeah. my gosh. You did an awesome TED Talk talking about these animals and and how little was known about the biology. And so mm-hmm. are you really having to kind of figure out basically what's the life cycle, what's a reproductive cycle? Are you spending a lot of time in the field with them?
1: I am, so I do the field work. So we, when this project first started, I was brought on board and I was the start of doing all that, but now the project has expanded. So I now I now have a faculty position. So there's been additional postdocs brought on board. So this has been an expanding team effort. So I wanted to mm-hmm. make that clear. Mm-hmm. So a lot of the stuff I started just noting the questions and the patterns of behavior, we've been able to pick this work up by others and spread it out across multiple teams now. So I'm excited about that. But yes, that's exactly how it started. We didn't know anything and we started from scratch. The first animals we got were the ones from Ghana, which we only got four, which wasn't enough to do any research. They just helped me get used to the, to the animals and handling them.
0: All right, so in the genus Chrysotomus, I think, you've got your Gambian pouched rat, and as it turns out, three other species with different variations, which Dr. Lee encountered once she started working with the ones in Tanzania. Boy, howdy did she.
1: But that's a different species. Oh. And and from my observations, having handled both, they're they're different. They're different. Mm Mm-hmm. They look different. They have slightly different behaviors. I thought the ones from Ghana, because I'd never seen and interacted with anything that big mm-hmm. uh, and fast, I was like, oh, these are the these these guys are they're some tough customers. You don't want to come across mm-hmm. them at night. <laughs> and when I got to Tanzania, I realized the ones from Ghana were baby dolls. Oh my gosh. <laughs> <laughs> they were outright just just snuggly compared oh to the God. Tanzania ones.
0: <laughs> Well, they're so smart and they're so dexterous. You are able to research how they can be used to help with finding
1: landmines? Right. So that's actually a nonprofit does this. So they do the training. Mm-hmm. Um, and they've worked with several academic teams from a little bit of all over. But yeah, they do What they do is really basic operant conditioning, positive mm-hmm. reinforcement. Mm -hmm. And they train them. Now, they don't work with wild animals. So some of the history behind that is, um, you know, in the early days, trying to make it figure it out, they're working with wild ones because these are nuisance rodents. So that's the thing I learned in doing it because I work in the wild with wild animals. Mm -hmm. I learned that all the animals that have gone into the program, they were captured, originally tried to train, but then now they just go into breeding. They're all nuisance animals that are caught within the town. Because they were getting into somebody's house or food stores or just vexing them in some sort of way. Mm -hmm. They're all nuisance animals. Wow. So I'm hosted by the local university, Sokolini University of Agriculture. Mm -hmm. That's in Tanzania. And my host department is the Pest Management Center. And so just as the name would say, they are pests.
0: It'd be like if we had a raccoon getting in the garbage and then we're like, you know what?
1: As long as we got you, do you want to help us... Find some landmines. That's exactly how it works. Landmines and help us diagnose tuberculosis, because that's also what they can do. Really? And that's, yep. um, are they using like olfaction for that? All olfaction. This is all olfaction.
0: That just means smell, but I was trying to sound more professional because underneath I was very giddy to be having this conversation, if you must know. Anyway, her postdoc.
1: So the postdoc that's at Cornell now, Dr. Angela Freeman. She's been doing some amazing, again, basic biology and descriptive studies looking at really focusing on their olfaction. And so Mm -hmm. she's really getting down to some of the questions of, of, to the answers of how is it they're so good at this? Mm -hmm. She's really doing a lot of that. So she's looked at olfaction and then because olfaction, we know we can use it for training for work, but then here's where the biology comes from and the ethologist in me is, then what are they using olfaction from in the wild and it's likely for reproduction it's likely for social interactions and so she's been beginning to look at olfaction from the reproductive point of view and some of her the stuff that's come out so far is just what you would expect it's like oh they're good at smelling so that they can identify who's receptive and who's not receptive for mating hmm
0: so it's just like a extra sensory pheromone (laughs) snooter
1: looking around looking around so they use it for that very likely they use it for finding food and if they they already have the evolutionary mechanics for sniffing things out really well Mm -hmm. it makes sense that they've been really good at sniffing out these other molecules related to either lung disease or tnt Wow. And that's essentially what's ha- that's, that's what applied science is, is using what we know about basic science and you hone in on it for applied science.
0: So this is a big deal because between fifteen to 20,000 people each year are killed or injured by landmines. And our little rat friends are really great at sniffing out the TNT, plus are too light to detonate the landmines and they don't bond with their trainers like dogs do so they can move around to different countries without getting emotionally butthurt. Now, Dr. Lee notes that we know a lot about dogs, but not enough about these rodents of practically dog size.
1: The reason why, the, like in my TED Talk, I talk about that, they put the applied science, the um, organization that, that trained them, they put the applied science in front of the basic science, and they had a lot of trial and error. Mm. And, what, and the reason why I talk about that is because when we don't take our time and invest in basic science you'll you'll lose a lot of time and that's Mm -hmm. what happened it took them years and years and years to kind of perfect their protocols and they're still working on perfecting their breeding protocols simply because didn't understand what's their breeding ecology what's their mating system so what i do i study them in the wild so i take trips now at this point when i'm able to leave the country about Mm -hmm. once a year Mm -hmm. once every other year really trying to find out where they live and how they live. So finding and marking nests, who lives there, who's visiting there, what's trying to estimate um, their home ranges, or who overlaps with whom. And this story is still, as much as I find out, I'm still figuring things out.
0: So one thing she's discovered in her research is that depending on the age and the sex of these super sniffer rodents, they use their space differently. Also... They like to get down.
1: Like many mammals, they're probably not monogamous, mm-hmm. and that there's lots of visitation and checking up on one another. <laughs> so olfaction is very important. But then, one of the things that's always been an issue since I began visiting there since 2012 is the fact that if I were looking at my data as far as age, ages of individuals I trap, you never trap young ones. You never trap babies. Yes. Really, they don't come above ground. Oh, they don't come above ground. And then when I'm talking to my host, so that includes my host at the university, includes my technical host, and so the person who I'm amazingly indebted to is Shabani Lutea. So he's a he's a tech at Pest Management Center, mm-hmm. and he's truly the authority on pouch rats. I, I, I just get to work with him. I'm very, very lucky and I get to codify and I get to work with him, but he's taught me everything I know. Uh, he's the one who's caught every single animal that has gone into that training program. Like He really is that person. Wow. And he was the one who, as I'm out with him catching animals for my research, that's when I kind of start putting the story together. He's like, yeah, all these animals came from basically the equivalent of his backyard. Oh. His backyard and throughout his neighborhood. So, like, I, I literally can I spend, I spend a lot of my time on one street. Uh huh. One oh street God. is notorious, it has contributed more to saving lives and repatriating <sighs> land. <laughs> Unbelievable. <laughs> from, uh, from one whole street. <laughs> uh, oh my gosh. <laughs> this one street in, uh, in, yeah, in Umtawala, Umtawala, which is a We would call it a neighborhood. So, a neighborhood in Moragoro, this working class. Neighborhood in Tanzania has done more um, uh, for that, uh, but in the in the process of doing that, in the process of spending time with these families, in the process of them letting me not just come in their house but tromp all through through their property, that really started awakening me to thinking about. So, what does this research mean to them? Like, this is an animal that bothers them.
0: But Dr. Lee says, in their eyes,
1: yes, it's nice. And it's great that it saves lives, but they're literally like we've been catching rats for years and giving them away or getting rid of them because they're bothering us. When is this research going to mean something to us? Mm -hmm. And that really stopped me in my tracks. And I started thinking about it. I was like, you're right. You know, I need this research has to matter now. And so trying to understand their habits and what makes them good at exploiting these things is now. Is now what I'm focused on specifically trying to understand their distribution and their movement patterns such that we can come up with solutions to help people to either divert these animals from coming into their houses or coming onto their property. Mm-hmm. But it's interesting, despite all of that, folks don't, they're not overwhelmingly antagonistic. Their feelings aren't overwhelmingly antagonistic. Like they'll say they bother me, they vex me. Could you do something about it, please? Mm-hmm. But Like it doesn't come off as you know, I'm ready. It's, it's not like the groundskeeper of cat chat <laughs> <you know? laughs> And they have every right for it to be
0: <laughs> By foe my enemy is an animal and in order to conquer him. I have to think like an
1: animal uh, This is what I'm learning. So this I'm gonna be very clear This is what I'm learning as as an American as a western scientist doing science in a place where people have A historical and indigenous relationship to an animal. Like, I I really believe that's a very Western way of thinking of it. Mm. Like, this idea that you have to, that human wildlife conflict have to all be contentious, or people Mm. have to feel antagonistic against it just because there's a conflict. I, I really, I'm really beginning to think that is a construct that we've created because we compartmentalize ourselves outside of nature so much. Yeah. And so, yeah. It vexes them, but they also, you know, it's it's not a deal breaker. In other words, people haven't picked up and moved, you know, yeah. you know, and they need, so sometimes it comes down to what better resources can we provide for people? So some of it is, you know, if we had better resources and infrastructure for how we built our houses or the foundations, what materials are available to people for laying the foundation of their home. Mm-hmm. It could some of these some of these issues could be addressed for that. I'm, it won't fix all of them, or it could come down to if we had infrastructural grants so that more people had indoor plumbing because they usually I found them accessing near the out. We would call it an outhouse. Mm-hmm. So their their toilet. Mm-hmm. Well, if folks have indoor plumbing, this isn't an issue anymore.
0: Ah.
1: I've come to realize there's so many different ways to think about this. Uh, and some of it just comes down to if we're just sharing, you know, intellectual capital resources with one another in different parts of the world. Mm-hmm.
0: And what about you growing up? Were you someone that was out in nature a lot? Were you looking at particularly mammals or lizards or bugs or flowers? Or when did you kind of start to really appreciate wildlife?
1: Uh, I always like, I was an outside kid, so mm-hmm. I, grew up outside uh, my mom was worked in parks and rec so i got to go i went to work with her every day so, ah, that's so great. like child care was a minimal thing I, I, <laughs> I got to hang out in tow so i spent my days outside on the park outside in the park in the front yard backyard this is i'm also gen x so you know kids were expected to go outside and just play Mm-hmm. just go figure it out yeah and and so i like i've always liked animals i was that kid bringing stuff home uh-huh. I really was. I, I've been a little bit more uh, attentive to the to the cute furries. Mm-hmm. I tried to have a bird once. That didn't go so well. but I oh, no. like I like the furries. <laughs> I didn't see my first lizard until I was an adult almost. So really? I saw, no, I didn't see like reptilian wildlife was mm-hmm. rare for me. Like I think I saw a turtle once or twice, but turtles <laughs> were always far away. So like they weren't part of my. My urban wildlife scape. So Mm -hmm. for me it was all, it was mammals, it was birds, and then it was insects. And I don't like insects. I've never been a big fan (laughs) of That's my no go. But the cute furries? The cute furries, absolutely. And I was always asking questions. Like I've never not been asking questions about why and how and what. And explain that to me and I was, I was, I just consumed nature programs. Like if it was an animal show on, it was like I was watching it. Like Mm -hmm. I'm going to watch all the animal shows, everything. And so that's really what did it for me.
0: At what point did you know that you were going to become a scientist? What was that path like?
1: I didn't know I was going to become a scientist until I was in the middle of doing a master's. Really? (laughs) I didn't know. I did. I did not understand. And how that path back to the whole always asking questions, I started a project, which wasn't even my thesis. I wasn't even trying to get a thesis I was just taking classes because I wanted to be I thought I wanted to be a veterinarian hmm and I needed to uh, improve my GPA because I had applied in undergrad and didn't get in so I was writing papers and kind of d- diving deeper into what we call the theory behind biology as opposed to just the facts and the history of discovery and my professor told me he's like you ask a lot of good questions I'm like because I'm always asking questions mm-hmm. but I was asking questions from the point of view of I just wanted someone to tell me the answer because I was certain those answers existed I just didn't know where they were or what the answers were and it was in the process of taking these classes I realized oh a lot of these questions haven't been asked.
0: It's a great question.
1: And so he started me on a project based on one of the papers I wrote in class it was animals, animal communication and cognition that was that was my um, aha. The, that was the beginning mm. of kind of leading me on this path. And he was like, this paper can be a project. And he outlined how it could be a project. So I started working with him just on a research project. Still not a thesis. I think I had in, imagined it with birds because it was all just, I was just writing hypothetical papers like imagine this and imagine mm-hmm. that. <laughs> and he worked with field mice vole. And So mm-hmm. he's like, we can do this project with the animals I work. Trying to ask if there's different levels of communication, if there's synonymous signaling. And I was like, okay, you know, I was following along. And so I started the project and I started getting into it. And it was in the middle of that project that I was like, oh, this is what the scientific method is for? Uh,
0: How wonderful is that? Okay, get ready for some more inspirational goosebumps.
1: I really got into it and it hit me. I was like, I don't need anyone to answer my questions for me anymore. I can answer my own questions. That was when I decided to be a scientist and I literally, I had an application in for vet school and I withdrew it. Oh my gosh. And I was just, and I got a call from them because I had interviewed with them. It was my top choice school. So they knew me because I mm-hmm. had interviewed twice and they were like, just, just get your scores in. You're you're good. You're good. We've seen your progress. You're, this time we think it's it. They were like, like, without saying you're guaranteed, but they were like, we promise you, it looks yeah. really good for you this time. And I was like, no. They were like, but you're really. Good. I say no. I'm gonna, I'm gonna take my chances and apply for a PhD. they were like, what? Oh my. God. I was like, I wanna, be, I wanna research animal behavior. I realized this is what I've always wanted to do. I just didn't know this was a job that mm-hmm. I could do. I didn't know science was a, I like, I knew science, but I only thought knew. In my, in my own life from a very applied, practical point of view, like to help people, to fix things, to solve a problem, mm-hmm. I didn't understand or know that basic research wasn't even, was even a viable pathway and and I didn't really, like this is how weird it was. I was in college, loved college, did not put together one and one that my college professors were researchers.
0: Right no, I, I completely understand. Like they're, you know, when you go to elementary school and high school, they're there to teach you. So when you go to college, they're just there to teach you harder stuff. And then, yeah, it doesn't click that they're also publishing papers and continuing their ongoing stuff. Right.
1: Right. Yeah. And that's, that's why I was like, oh, and I was like, wait, you get paid to watch animals all day? I want, I want in on that. I want in on that, and it was in the middle of it was, the, and that's when I, I went did the paperwork. I was like, I want to get a thesis. I'm gonna do the thesis now, and I'm gonna apply for PhD. And I was like, I want to be a college professor because then I understood that a professor was someone who not only taught college classes, it's a person who teaches college classes and trains students in science. Mm-hmm. And so I was like that's what I want to do. So so yeah, I didn't know I wanted, I didn't understand that I could be nor wanted to be a scientist until I was in my master's.
0: Oh, I think that's amazing. Were there any, any movies about scientists or about uh, mammals or rodents at all that really get it right or wrong? I know you mentioned the Princess Bride, which (laughs) is, is burned in all of our minds or any myths about scientists that you'd want to debunk?
1: Oh, most of the movies don't get it right. Yeah. <laughs> most of them don't get it right. <laughs> so uh, the, I, I feel like I wouldn't even want to use my time. explaining Yeah. It all this <laughs> road. Just
0: know they don't get it right.
1: Most no. of them don't get it right.
0: Okay. What about mammals? We're mammals, but so are pouched rats and wolves and Tasmanian devils. Is there more variation among mammals than, say, reptiles?
1: And so now if we're going to look at the whole thing, reptiles, big, big umbrella, then of course they got the spread. They win. Mm-hmm. They win. Uh, we're more weirder than you. <laughs> <laughs> That's a very good point. <laughs> if we if we do it that way. Um, but yeah, mammals are interesting. So we have a little bit of everything. So we have the live birthers versus mm-hmm. the not live birthers. And among the live birthers, we have the fully developed versus the barely Mm developed. Among those that do the fully developed, stay with mama a long time, or I need you out the door as soon as possible. Mm -hmm. So this, what I like to call diversity and investment strategy Mm -hmm. of the species. Like how much do you invest in an offspring to make sure they're you know, big and strong before they're out there on their own in that big widening world? It literally can range from Years to moments. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> Years to moments. <laughs> like,
0: why Why do you think that is? And what influences that? So
1: it's a lot of things that influence that. Some of it is evolutionarily. Like, you know, just part of it is you got to work with what you got. So, you know, if you're a certain type of animal, you're kind of locked into that strategy. So as humans, we're locked into... You Know these long gestational periods of nine to ten months. We're locked into these long post birth periods of nourishment of at least two to three years, and even then, just because they don't need to suckle milk anymore, they're not really out there. They you just can't set them free at seven, yeah. <laughs> just can't set them free, they, they won't make it. So, we have this. So, part of it is, but as humans, like the fact that you're born a human, you're locked into that strategy, you just can't decide, I want to be like a you know, I want to be a mama kangaroo mm-hmm. and I want to drop this egg in five days and that's it. Like it's nothing you can do about that. evolutionarily you're locked into, into whatever you are because of your species. So mm-hmm. part of it is evolution, but it's also ecology. In other words, so where you are, the time you are, how much space you have to do your business and make a living, all these inputs determine how, how you make a living and how well you live.
0: So all these different evolutionary pressures, like if you're dodging predators constantly, or if you gorge food and then store it really well, or if you have a fast metabolism, those will affect your internal furnace. And if you're like, I need to know more about thermophysiology, definitely listen to the thermophysiology episode of Ologies with Dr. Shane Campbell-Staten. His episode is amazing. Also, check out his podcast, The Biology of Superheroes, which is so good. Okay, but yes evolutionary pressures and hot blood
1: all these different strategies determine a lot of stuff so like going back to comparing birds and mammals so we're both warm-blooded and so in order for, in order for gestation in the words for your babies to develop really really well and this is across all species even for reptiles you got to have that right temperature got got it literally has to cook when we say it's been in the oven <laughs> it literally has to cook <laughs> It has to cook and it has to cook at the right temperature. Too hot or too cold, you mess up the whole recipe. Nothing's gonna, nothing is <laughs> not gonna happen. But there's a few different ways of doing it. So a lot of reptiles, they drop their egg, they put it in the soil, they cover it up, they do a little kiss, throw it up to the sky, be like, hope it works out. <laughs> like mama reptile's like, I did a little temperature check. This ground is about right. And I know I'm going to be gone for forever because I ain't going to never see you again. Yeah. Hope this stays. Literally kiss up to the sky and I'm out. <laughs> so that's like like turtles. Yeah. Birds on the other hand are like, you know what? I still got to get this temperature right. But I still need to be able to move a little bit here and there to go get some more food. Because carrying all these eggs, they're heavy. Mm-hmm. They're heavy. Female animals when they're gravid or when they're sitting on a nest, they got to be careful because it makes them easy pickings for predators. Mm-hmm. So that's the reason why you know, mama turtle holds on to them, to those eggs as long as she can. Yeah. She incubates them and cooks them. After while she's like, I'm too slow. I'm going to get gobbled up by these sharks or whatever else is out here in the water. I got to drop these eggs and lighten my load. Mm-hmm. <laughs> mama bird is very similar, but she's like, you know what? I can kind of get up and move a little bit. So what I'm going to do is I'm gonna make this really nice nest. I'm gonna insulate it as much as possible. If there's a partner involved, we'll take turns sitting on it and keeping it warm. But like they have to be careful with that too. If they stay gone too long, that throws the temperature off. Back to the cooking. Like, oh, mm-hmm. mess the recipe up. <laughs> what happens in mammals is, you know what? I need to be able to move and I need to be able to keep the temperature going. So what female mammals are able to do is they're able to keep their babies with them at all times. They know their temperature's gonna be right. They're gonna go where they go. There's still some trade-offs and loss of movement and dexterity, but compared to other species, like female mammals are able to still get quite a bit done, Mm -hmm. even though they're pregnant up until the last day. So that's why some have strategies of sitting still in the end, but they like, think about cats. They stay hunting. Yeah. to near the end, you know. But so that's so that's one of the advantages. So like, we have these trade-offs. But like that temperature control is really important. And what we see are these three very dramatic strategies for that temperature control across the three main groups of vertebrates. Mm-hmm. Drop them off. Wish for the best. Yeah. <laughs> drop them off but keep up with them but if things get real real bad i'll bug out and i'll start all over again (laughs) or this we are all we in this together that's that's the mammal (laughs) we are in this together Oh my gosh. I got you and you got me.
0: Oh my gosh. Um, I have so many questions from listeners that know that you're coming on the show. So yeah, I announced that you're coming on and everyone's like, ah. So I could ask it, but I would rather let them ask it. Um, uh, Okay. Okay, we're going to let those questions cook a second longer while we take a quick break to hear about sponsors of the show who enable us to make a donation to a cause of theologists choosing. And this week, Dr. Lee chose Semlink, that's Science, Engineering, and Math Link, which is a nonprofit. It was founded in 2005 by Toika T. Smith in Atlanta. And Semlink promotes student achievement and career exploration in math and science while increasing student exposure to STEM communities. And their mission is... Unveiling potential through exposure. So, to learn more or to donate yourself, you can see semsuccess.org. There's a link to them in the show notes. So, a donation went to them in Dr. Danielle and Lee's name. Thanks to some sponsors of the show who you may hear about now. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Listen, we're all carrying around just a backpack of stressors and sadnesses. When we keep them all zipped up and the load gets heavier, it can start to affect us negatively. You start to feel misunderstood, sad, resentful. A safe place to unpack that is, you guessed it, Here's the deal. So whether you're staying at home or you're heading out on some summer explorations, KiwiCo is inviting kids, also kids at heart, that's you, to enjoy their first ever summer adventure series. So kids from two years old to teens can receive six hands-on science and art project kits over six weeks. They have something for everyone. They have different topics for each age, whether your kid wants to explore space or learn about dinosaurs. And I've heard from my parental friends that summer can be a little challenging to keep the kids busy. Kiwi goes like, we did the legwork for you. And the Summer Adventure Series is this personalized experience with super fun activities like a bottle rocket kit where kids can build an actual bottle rocket. And you can either receive all of your summer adventure crates at once or weekly for six weeks. I think it's so amazing that they have different crates for different ages. Everything from the great outdoors that has like giant bubbles or a window garden to a trebuchet kit for ages nine to 14. An entrepreneur where you can do textured clay projects. If you have kids, if you know kids, keep them occupied and learning and having fun this summer with KiwiCo. And you can get 20% off your summer adventure series at kiwico.com slash ologies summer. That's 20% off your summer adventure at k-i-w-i-c-o dot com slash ologies summer. Oh, have fun. Oh, it's heating up. It's time to say bye now to your jackets and your sweaters and your tights and get reacquainted with shorts and tees, breezy things. Can I point you to the direction of Quince? What I love about Quince, you can build a lineup of timeless pieces that keep you looking effortlessly chic year after year without spending a fortune. They have premium European linen dresses, blouses, and shorts. They start at $30. They have washable silk tops. And I love that all Quince items are priced 50 to 80% less than similar brands because they partner directly with top factories. They cut out the cost of the middleman and then they pass the savings on to you. So whether you need a sundress you can wear to a picnic or you need some good t-shirts or tanks that feel nice on your skin and are well-made, head over to Quince. I love them so much I put them on my body. That's what clothes are for. Get warm weather ready with Quince. Go to quince.com ologies for free shipping on your order and 365 day returns. <gasps> That's qince.com slash ologies to get free shipping in three hundred sixty-five day returns. Q-U-I-N-C-E dot com slash ologies. Oh hi, it's me, the lady that checks a bunch of scholarly articles before she believes anything. Allie Ward. And I feel like we are similar in that we have a fair amount of skepticism and we like to dive deep and find out what the actual facts are. This is why when it comes to any kind of supplements, I enjoy Ritual, which is a female-founded B Corp, meaning that they're holding themselves accountable to not just the company, but also to the health of people in our planet. And they're clinically backed essential for women at 18 plus multivitamin and has these high quality traceable key ingredients in bioavailable forms that are clean. Only about 1% of supplement brands are USP verified and Ritual is one of them. So I like being able to trust what I'm putting in my body. From an aesthetic standpoint, I'll also tell you that Ritual are beautiful little vitamins. They look like lava lamps and they taste like mint. So taking my Ritual is part of my, I guess, morning ritual. That's probably why they named it that and I didn't even think about it. Anyway, no more shady business. Ritual's Essential for Women 18 Plus is a multivitamin you can actually trust. So get 25% off your first month at ritual.com slash ologies. You can start Ritual or add Essential for Women 18 Plus to your subscription today. That's ritual.com slash ologies for 25% off. Down the hatch. Okay, your questions. This was the most asked question, y'all. Patrons Ashley M. Gellhouse, Lauren Krupins, Asia Yeager, Ellen Skelton, Clint Herbert, Alia Myers, Hardy Kem, Michael McLeod, Addie Capello, Madeline Winter, and first time question asker Miranda Chavez, who wrote in simply platypus man. What the fuck? What is happening with the platypus? Uh, Natalie Landon Brantz is first time question asker Um, Essentially says like why why are they so weird? Do do they even have nipples? What, they've got eggs and venom, but they're a mammal. What's happening?
1: Yeah. All right. So platypuses are mammals because they meet the what I call the base criterion of what makes a mammal a mammal, mm-hmm. and that is they make nourishment from mammary glands, mm-hmm. but they don't have nipples. What? <laughs> So you would think nipples, so you can have mammary glands without nipples. So what happens with the platypus is they have tufts of hair. So we think milk glands are actually just special sebaceous glands, those special little glands that hang out around hair anyway. hmm So that's what we think mammary glands are. Still re- deep research needed to figure that out, to be honest. Oh, wow. But So they make nourishment still. They make a milk. But they don't have nipples, and so basically the babies just kind of suckle on little tufts of hair, oh, a little like uh,
0: little cowlicks, just milkshake yeah.
1: cowlicks. Yeah, they find them. Little, <gasps> yeah, and they just yeah. So yeah, so so they're what we would call on the evolutionary tree. They're like high up, so they're really in between. Like they are a really good example of that that bridge of. Uh, That our connection to our other vertebrate cousins, like the birds and the reptiles that we mentioned, that I mentioned before, because they have that kind of, they have so many traits that are very bird slash reptilian like. Mm -hmm. But they have eggs.
0: They lay eggs. They do lay eggs. And so you don't have to have live birth to be a mammal?
1: Nope. The drop dead criteria is, do you make milk from mammary glands? That's where the word comes from. Mammal mammary. So it doesn't matter
0: if you drop some eggs or have a bill. It doesn't. <laughs> I, gotta ha- I have to have a platypus expert on because there are a lot of people that are just convinced they're not even real. So I they're,
1: I can <laughs> understand thinking that. But
0: yeah. So platypuses, they're real and they're spectacular. Also, platypus experts, watch your DMs because I'm on to you. This next question, by the way, w- was just begging for the drama of the superlative and was asked by Ann Over, Colleen Selwood, Alia Myers, and Adam Weaver. A lot of folks just want to know if you have a favorite mammal.
1: I do. So when I was younger, like, I love, like, I love wolves and dogs. I, I am a dog person. Aww. I like them all, but I do like dogs. Okay. My favorite to brag on, though? Mm-hmm. My favorite to brag on are all, like, mustelids. Like, I love, they're the badasses of the entire animal kingdom. Those the weasels? Weasels. Honey badgers, oh. I love them. They just regularly take on animals fifty times their size. <laughs> they, I like to call them. They're the ain't never scared. They ain't never scared. They're they're Spitfires. They're Spitfires, they're the, don't come lest I sin for you.
0: Ferrets <laughs> and weasels and just, uh, yeah, I I feel you on that. Um, yeah. That's amazing. Um, let's see, so so many questions. I'm skipping a lot of questions about platyphuses because they were all under the same.
1: Um, that's neat. I love that so many people have so many questions. I know. So platypie. many. The platypie. The platypie. <laughs>
0: <laughs> and uh, uh, Alia Myers is a first-time question asker and wants to know, are there any mammals that can't make facial expressions? Can most mammals make facial expressions? Is that how they, is that how they communicate, partly?
1: Many of those that use visual. So what we call facial expressions, that's, that's a lot of our interpretation. But what many of them are able to do is that there's a lot of dexterity around their, nu- their muzzle mm-hmm. and their nose. And they have a lot of movement around their ears and around their eyes. And so what we would call facial expressions, they actually do use a lot of being able to manipulate those muscles for a lot of animal communication within their species. Mm -hmm. So we have what's called graded signals or discrete signals. So like ears up, ears back, they all communicate just slight tweaks of how they're, you know, of information to conspecifics or even to other animals that they live in these really large communities and they need to let things know. Especially for animals that are communicating with predators, like, not today, I'm going to put up a fight. What is that expression on your face? (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Uh, But what we call facial expressions, that's actually a bit more of an interpretation of us because of, of us as people.
0: And so we're looking at it because we have facial expressions, so we kind of put that on to other animals. We do,
1: but yeah, but do they have this dexterity in the muscles in their face absolutely. Mm
0: -hmm. Ellen Skelton wants to know why have so many mammals evolved to cooperate or stay in large groups as opposed to other animals?
1: So sociality is really common in a lot of species uh, that we see, that we attribute a lot of high cognitive function to. Mm -hmm. We see that. Um, And that's because sociality yields a lot of benefits. Think about it. You don't have to look for a mate when it's time to mate. Um, you can conserve your own physiological energy when it comes to keeping you know warm, the right temperature. Being around others is a really good way to exploit them for information and other resources. So I don't have to be really good at hunting. I can let you be good at hunting and I come around and pick up scraps. Mm. So sociality has a lot of benefits. Now there are costs to it as well. So likelihood of spreading communicative diseases, whether it's like parasites or things like the mange or even sexually transmitted diseases, like you're like, oh, it's too many of us and things, Mm -hmm. bad things can be passed around really easily or even sicknesses like what we're experiencing now, like with COVID among us, Mm -hmm. you know, sociality counts against us. Yeah. But so much of what we need to do to make a living requires for many species outright cooperation or even just passive cooperation. Um, and if nothing else, we we got to find each other, you know, in, in order to reproduce. Yeah, that's true. Yeah.
0: Unless you've got parthenogenesis going for you, you're going to have evolu-
1: to. So here's the thing. We know that that can happen with some medical assistance. <laughs> oh, <yeah. laughs> but if, without medical advances, we're back to only working what I call an evolutionary toolkit. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Our evolutionary toolkit does not allow us to do a lot of things very very well Mm -hmm. for long without the aid of others right
0: um I someone I read somewhere about thinking about everything that you have in your life everything that you you touch whether it's like a, a you know a shirt that you're wearing to a glass that you're drinking out of how many human beings had to be involved in the process Of that, Mm -hmm. whether or not you're drinking tea that came from somewhere else and someone had to grow it. And, you know, there's so many people are involved in objects that you you don't even think about. Um, Facts. Facts. So even if you're alone, you're touched by others, but not like creepy, like ghosts with bad boundaries, just metaphysically. We all affect each other and we're in this together. Mo Casey had a great question about life expectancy and why does a mouse have such a short one compared to a horse, which lives for decades? And is it just size? And speaking of which, with the pouched rat, how long do they live?
1: All right, so starting with them. We know in captivity they can live seven to eight years. Oh, wow, okay. We're not sure how long they live in the wild. Um, and that's because uh, from what I can tell, I don't see anyone else that's interested in tracking them in the wild. So of the animals I have tagged, fingers crossed I keep finding them. So we usually whenever something lives for a long time in captivity, we estimate about half that in the wild because, you know, there's no antibiotics in the wild. Yeah. There's hunting, there's life. Yeah. Things that happen. The reason why different things live at uh, different times is not just about size. Size is a correlate with it, but it comes down to what's happening with them physiologically, their metabolism, how long something takes. So being large enables you to avoid a lot of predators. So, that's, so big things don't have as many other things that can take them out. If you're not taken out, then you can live a long time thereafter, assuming everything else in your body is in pretty good shape. Mm -hmm. you just got to get through that that scary small period of your life ah
0: so small so fragile
1: so that's one of the reasons so once you get past that that scary juvenile period then you can pretty much live until what we call that natural death when your body just wears out Mm -hmm. (laughs) (laughs) um but little things live for a short period of time because Part of it is their metabolism. Their metabolism is real fast. They're 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 burning themselves up. If we don't use that. That's not technically what's happening, but that's just one way to envision it from a lay position. Is that they're they're always going? Mm-hmm. But the other thing that you got to keep in mind for things like mice is they don't tend to die of old age. Mm. Like we really take for granted as people that most things don't die of old age.
0: They just are predated on. Yeah. On, yeah,
1: predated on, or you, or you just kind of die. You just return to the earth in the arms of the angels. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so that's, but yeah, they do have a relatively shorter lifespan. Like so, in the so, my, small mice species can live one or two years. They don't tend to. Mm-hmm. Yeah, <laughs> but yeah, but that's that's part of it. And so, like, basically, you like you accumulate these effects. And so, longer lived animals, we tend to see. What we call um, age related, like disease, what we call natural causes of death. Mm -hmm. So things like, you know, diabetes or heart disease or like later onset diseases, either due to metabolism or structure. In animals that tend to be predated upon or die early, those things just don't accumulate because they tend to die when they're still just in or just past the prime of life and by prime i mean like the height of reproductive life so in mm-hmm. other words when you're at the height of having the most babies and even looking at people old age is a relatively new thing for us uh, living to be a
0: hundred would n- not have happened without antibiotics uh, and that was, no, that's
1: magic let's be honest if yeah we were to transport and talk to someone from 200 years ago a hundred years is magic right? yeah the demography If you look at it, like 50 was considered old a hundred years ago. Our 50 isn't our parents' 50 either. Yeah, yeah. So like we we technically, so back when my mom was, you know, younger, 55, 60 seemed, oh, even like the image of what a 55, 60 year old looked like is completely different. Like we started joking, you know, saying, oh, today's 40 is Thirty, yeah, you know, starting with Demi Moore, yeah, because she, you know, she's defined But that's that's actually becoming progressively true for our generations. We are a younger forty and fifty than our parents were at that time. For age. Sure, for sure. Yeah, yeah. Oh, just a
0: side note: retirement communities start at age fifty-five, and Wilfred Brimley rest his recently dearly departed soul, was just 18,530 days old when Cocoon started filming, which is just 50 years old. Now, you can see this generational incongruity at the Twitter account Brimley Line as they tweet out other celebrities who have crossed this age line. Matthew McConaughey, Will Smith, Gwen Stefani, Jennifer Lopez, Jay-Z, and... The entire cast of Friends are now older than Wilford Brimley was when he starred as an elderly curmudgeon in Cocoon. So life, man, it comes at you fast. Oh, Ferris Bueller crossed it eight years ago, but he looks good, right? Okay, speaking of ancient things, this next one was asked by patrons Scott Sheldon, Megan Walker, Vincent Heidet, Fernando, and Mark Chavez. Of a lot of patrons wanted to know if it weren't for the asteroid wiping out the dinosaurs, do you think that mammals would have survived to today?
1: No, it, that had to happen for for mammal evolution. Like that, they, wow. they, if it that like that is a critical like when I teach mammalogy, that's one of the the, the one uh, historical events that is critical. If it had not been for that mammal evolution would have, there were still mammals, but they would have stayed small. (gasps) They would have stayed in the ground. We would not have had a mammalian radiation. That's what we call it. That's when the explosion, like the mammals came above ground and they were able to diversify and form shape and species. If the dinosaurs hadn't died, none of that would have happened. Uh, We would not be here if it had not have been for the KT event.
0: Really? This is literally the first I've ever heard that. That's amazing.
1: (gasps) Yeah. We uh, said they had to go for us to flourish. Ah, uh, is that
0: why there are, say, five thousand species of mammals, but like thirty thousand species of beetles?
1: Insects have been around for a long time, so they they've experienced some radiation as well. Mm-hmm. So there's been more mammals, and we've lost some. But what we call these radiation events, in other words, so think of radiation as spread out. Mm-hmm. So it's not just spread out physically, geographically across the globe, but it also comes with this diversification and new form and type. Big events, so stochastic events, are often the reason for radiations of any type across any type of organismal species. Mm -hmm. So like you need like this, like the spark that caused it. But not necessarily. Beetles are just, there was just a lot of them to begin with, Mm -hmm. you know. Just, it's just a lot of (sighs) insects.
0: Just a lot of your them. Your favorite, which you love.
1: No, <laughs> I do think most be- many beetles are pretty. Yeah, I do. I they appreciate are. them. They are beautiful. Many of them, not all of them. Because roaches of- are technically beetles and I hate them.
0: <laughs> oh. uh, yeah, roaches are one. I love <laughs> bugs and roaches are one that I'm just like, uh uh-uh. uh, nope, nope, nope. Okay, just quick aside, bug nerds. I know you're like screaming into your windshield or your partner's face roaches aren't beetles, technically. And yes, we hear you. You're correct. They're more closely related to termites. I did some light reading about it, but Dr. Lee is here for mammology. This is not a cockroach episode, but also don't make me dip my toe in the Venn diagram between milk and roaches and remind you that cockroach milk is a thing and it comes from one species of roaches who blurp out this substance that is being touted as a superfood for humans. Are we done with this? Okay, moving on then. Courtney, Ryan had a great question. Do you think there are any undiscovered mammals out there.
1: Absolutely. Really. There there are. Yeah, there are places where we're really not so undiscovered from the sense of western science. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah.
0: Wow. Um let me see. I want oh, first time question asker, MJ Kayla Queen, who um says I love you both and is excited uh, you're on. Um thank you. first time question asker says, uh, I love mammals. Why are some people afraid of mice, do you think?
1: Uh, you know what? I can't speak for everyone, uh-huh. but are they afraid or are they startled because it just shocks you to see something scurry? Uh huh. And so, even I, so I'm not afraid of rodents by any means, but if I catch something in the side of my eye moving that I wasn't expecting, I'm going to jump. Yeah. That's a very normal startle response. So, I believe it's natural to be startled by them, Hmm. but I wonder if this whole fear part isn't socially conditioned. Mm. Because then we tell ourselves we're supposed to be afraid or someone tells you, oh, that's a fear reaction as opposed to, oh, stop. What is that? Let's figure it out. Mm-hmm. And so I don't know if every, a lot of people are truly afraid. I do believe being startled is natural.
0: Yes. Uh, I think that's why um, some people are more afraid of certain bugs, too, because they're just faster, you know.
1: It's the startle, yeah. yeah it's and so for me, and that's why I mean I don't like them. They sneak up on me. too Yeah, I don't like it. I don't like roaches
0: it. are really fast, but like uh, a pill bug, no one's ever like, ah,
1: "What is it?" You know. You know what? I played with roly polies as a kid, yeah. and I loved them. Right. So roly polies, I'm okay with. Yeah, they're so slow. Um, <laughs> a lot
0: of people, and I will include this in a side, want to know what is up with the variation in the number of nipples. Looking at nipple conscious listeners, Anthony Stoll, Elliot Warden, Jasmine McLean, and first time question asker, Jakob Joaquin.
1: So hold up, even in pouch rats, mm-hmm. I have counted like the females in my colony. Some females have seven, some have eight, some have six. Oh, huh. So because that's usually a very species specific thing. Like that's one of the things we could say, oh, this species has this number of nipples and that one that. And so we were trying to figure out how can we differentiate let's say the species that live in west africa versus those that live in eastern and central africa and some early one or two papers were saying oh the west african ones have six nipples and the east african ones have eight yeah i Hmm. can tell you for sure that is the the jury's still out i have counted animals i've caught myself from the exact same place same species and I've caught literally six, to, I've counted six, seven, or eight nipples. Ah. I had some females with odd number of nipples. Well, okay, Marky
0: Mark's got three, and he's a, a dude. So yep. what's up with dude nipples? Third nipple, I'm not aware of that. You're not aware of that? Yeah. Is it true, do you have a third nipple mark?
1: Yes. So, you know, just carryovers. So, like, so, so one, there's some evolutionary uh, biologists who say it's because males males either historically may have been able to produce milk back in the day, like evolutionarily back in the day, mm-hmm. and then it was lost, or it's just a physical vestige. So mm-hmm. it's a vestige that's left over. And so it's like, ah, oh, that's just part of the form. It doesn't mean anything. So you have all these just leftovers. Mm-hmm. Um, but nipples usually, usually are a good indicator to the number of young an animal can support at a time. Ah.
0: So if you birth triplets out there and you're listening to this, my heart and at least one extra boob go out to you. I mean, I would definitely donate them if I had extra nipples like Marky Mark and his funky bunch of three. And by the way, those are called supernumerary nipples. Zach Efron is a member of the Triple Nipple Brigade. Harry Styles isn't because he has four nipples. Isn't that fun to know? About one in 500 humans have bonus nipples. Most people think they're just moles. So if you have a bumpy birthmark somewhere on your milk line, aka between your armpit and your crotch, take a closer look. Although, surprise, nipples have shown up on backs, on faces, and in the case of one 22-year-old Brazilian woman, the sole of her foot She went to the doctor in 2006 to be like, hey, is this thing I've had on the sole of my foot normal? And they were like, yeah, it's a normal nipple in a really creative place. Can we take 4,000 pictures of it? It rules. Also, if you're wondering why approximately half of humans have perpetually swollen breasts while all the other rodents and mammals don't need sports bras unless they're nursing, one theory is that as humans evolve to walk upright, And our derriere areas were less swollen in estrus. There needed to be an indicator of sexual maturity that was closer to eye level. Although judging by the phrase, my eyes are up here, buddy, perhaps face nipples would have been the better adaptation. But back to the mammals that Dr. Lee studies. We're still talking about nipples, though. What about, um, do male rodents have nipples?
1: They, let me think twice. Male they I mean? do, but they stay really, really flat uh and flat to the uh body. Oh my god, that's amazing. And but so here's the other thing in a lot of mammals. Males have hair on their bellies, and that's one of the things four-legged females lose if they're a hairy species. They'll lose that hair. That's that's also another indicator of we can sometimes use it for indicator of sex and reproductive condition is if her belly is bald or not. <gasps> because if her belly's bald, that means she's she's at the very least brooding some babies because they got to be able to get to those nips. Oh, they got to be able to find them. And that That's and adorable. the babies rub it off because like in the process of nursing babies, they're pretty rough on that, on that underbelly. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. You know when you
0: see like an older guy who doesn't have any hair on his legs from like the knee sock area down? <laughs> Yes. <laughs> no. Just worn off.
1: <laughs> Just worn off. Oh, yeah. oh
0: my God. Okay. Uh, questions I always ask. Uh, the thing that you hate about being a mammologist, it can be as petty or as big as you want. It can be anything from email to cleaning glassware to.
1: I hate dealing with poop. <laughs> <laughs> I hate poop. Nothing ruins me more than having to deal with poop. Do rodents have it? smaller poops, at least? They are, but I just don't like dealing with the smears and the messes. Mm. Oh. Yeah, yeah. But that's where a lot of important information is. Nothing icks me out than getting pooped on or stepping in it or smashing my finger into it. <laughs> I hate the poops. Do you have to analyze uh, rat poops? I keep some for, for, for it. So I'm beginning. Actually, that's one of the if I can use this as yeah. a commercial, I'm looking to form a long-term relationship with uh, some microbiome, uh, gut microbiome biologists, uh-huh. so that we're able to use that. Because they, they do poop on me. That, I feel like that's just free data. Yeah. <laughs> so <laughs> collecting it and then asking some really good questions about that. Uh, I uh, I had a
0: scatologist on who is like Dr. Poop, they call her. She's at the, um, the Lincoln Zoo in Chicago, but she has... 13 freezers full of poops from every animal and yeah. uh yeah shoot but if there's a if there's someone out there who's looking to do some studies on perhaps some rodents of unusual size with poops of slightly unusual size
1: yeah so so here's but here's one of the things mm-hmm. i can't bring that over like because of international rules and laws mm-hmm. i can't take samples out of tanzania oh so what do you you have to do it there I either have to do it there. So I have some historical data from before they stopped it. So I have some old stuff, Mm -hmm. but I'm still working with local mice species. Uh But that's also kind of one of the things like cultivating that and kind of like, yeah. Mm -hmm. But that's, that's, so I would say my other thing I don't like about being a a scientist in today's age is it's sometimes hard to do some things based on a lot of the rules and risk. That's the other thing. Like there's rules because there's a risk of, bringing disease agents over. I get that. Mm -hmm. But then sometimes just not having the capacity to do everything because I haven't cultivated all the relationships that I would love to cultivate, not just here, but also on the continent, you Mm -hmm. know, cultivating relationships with more continental uh, scientists to do more research, having more of it just happen there. Mm -hmm. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, It's not
0: like CSI where you have the same person collecting blood swabs is doing the
1: footprint analysis and... (laughs)
0: In our dreams. Yeah, not what's happening. Okay, what about your favorite thing about being a mammologist?
1: The travel. Oh. I do science to travel. I grew up uh, in my family. We never got to go on family vacation, so travel was always a dream of mine. Mm-hmm. I just I just grew up working class poor. so my biggest dream was to grow up to be middle class. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> and so there are certain things that I was envious of, so like being able to travel and go places. And back to those nature shows that I love, they just seem to always be all over the world. Mm-hmm. And so for me, being able to travel, to see a lot of things for myself, I love being able to travel and visit places. Uh, where are some places that you've gotten to go? Most of my travels have been because of science. but So travel for research-related things and learning. I've gone to, I've been, been to Guyana. I love that. So I got to spend, I took a tropical biology class. Oh. Mm-hmm. And stayed in the bush, uh, Tanzania. So I've done research in these places. Other places I've been able to travel to talk about my research. So visiting. So Mexico, Canada,
0: Brazil,
1: parts of Europe. So the Netherlands, France, the UK. Oh my gosh! Again, all places I yeah. couldn't have gone on my own dime. <laughs> yeah. Yeah.
0: For real. That's why I work in. TV, too. I get to travel for that. And that that was a big part of it. Like, yeah, got to go to Alaska for TV. Yeah. I'm like, when would I get to go do that? Never, you know. So, yes, smart. Your passport must need extra pages.
1: (laughs) Not lately these days. I I do usually get up right to the mark and I'm like telling them, no, 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 there's a space in there. Right there. Right there. (laughs) Oh, my God.
0: Um, oh, and did you want to let anyone know about September 13th, about exciting Black mammologists? Yes. Week?
1: Yes. We're super excited. So I'm um, joined by amazing colleagues, uh, everyone from undergraduate students to fellow professionals and faculty members. We're celebrating Black Mammologist Week, mm-hmm. celebrating not only the research that mammologists have done historically and even today, but also kind of invigorating the spark of curiosity and interest in mammology and in science in general. Just among everyone who's interested, letting folks know that there is expertise in mammology historically and contemporarily. And we're just excited to share our science and our essentially our blooper reels. There's a, <laughs> lot, of, a lot of bloopers in doing science <laughs> and mammology in, in particular. And our goal is to inspire folks to become mammologists, to become scientists, and to um, just join this larger community of scientists. We're really excited to, to share this with everyone.
0: Do you have any that you any previews of any science bloopers that you're going to share?
1: I'm probably going to share when I got bit by a pouch rat. Uh, I got bit. Ouch. Yeah. yeah. Were there antibiotics it, involved? Probably should have been. Oh, no. Where did it bite you? But bit me on my left thumb, and that happened in 2015, and to this day I still don't have feeling back (gasps) in that thumb.
0: Do you know where that pouched rat is?
1: You know what? It was funny. (sighs) We were moments away from releasing her back into the wild after taking measurements. (laughs) We were just getting some last minute measurements and we we're gonna release her back in a while. So we released her back in a while. I wanna imagine she's living her best life. Oh. <laughs> and telling amazing <laughs> stories about that one time. She she took me down. I, I was physically taken down. Uh, it took three grown men to get that rat off of me. Uh, oh my gosh. I physically went down with her. Yeah. So she's telling it amazing stories. She's like, this one time, <laughs> took out this human, I took her down. Oh my God.
0: <laughs> Oh, wow. So every time you give a thumbs up in the left, there's
1: a lot going on behind that. It's a lot. Like, if we were in person, like, you can actually see my thumb. Mm-hmm. Like, I have divots in my thumb. <gasps> I, like, have little marks and divots. Wow.
0: Oh, that's a good story. I'm People need to tune in to hear the whole thing. <laughs> <laughs> oh, amazing. Um, this has been so great having you on. I just, have, I feel like I'm such a fangirl. I've been like so nervous and excited to talk to oh, you. thank
1: so you. <laughs> I'm all, I don't know what to do when folks say that because I'm always like, are we talking about this? you talking about me? Yeah.
0: So ask smart people stupid questions because the answers may be sniffing out landmines or tuberculosis or inspire you to make you count your nipples in the bathroom mirror at work. Now you can follow Dr. Lee, do it ASAP on Twitter and Instagram at dnlee5 and follow Black Mammologists at BLK Mammologists or at Black mammologists, all spelled out, .com. And those links are in the show notes. Plus, there are more links up at AllieWard.com slash ologies slash mammology. And we are at Twitter and Instagram at ologies on both. I'm at Allie Ward with one L on Twitter and Instagram. So, please do follow. There's more info up at AllieWard.com slash ologies. There are free transcripts for deaf and hard of hearing folks or anyone who wants a transcript, up at aliward.com slash ologies dash extras. Huge thanks to Emily White, who is a professional transcriber who heads up the efforts to get them done alongside a group of amazing ologites. And if you need transcripts for anything, email White at gmail.com because she is amazing. Thank you, Caleb Patton, for bleeping episodes, for kiddos. Thank you to Aaron Talbert for admitting the Ologies podcast Facebook group. Thank you, Shannon Feltis and Bonnie Dutch. They manage merch at ologiesmerch.com. There are shirts and hats and totes and visors, so much available there. Even Cozy Fall Blankets in Ologies Print, available at ologiesmerch.com. Shannon and Bonnie also host the comedy podcast You Are That, and they're hilarious. Uh, Thank you, Noelle Dilworth, for helping me with all the scheduling, because my brain is bad at it. Thank you to assistant editor, a.k.a. the butcher, Jarrett Sleeper, who hosts the mental health podcast, My Good Bad Brain. And, of course, to lead mustache, editor Stephen Ray Morris of the podcast See Jurassic Right, which is currently airing a back-to-school series with dinosaur scientists, so that is see jurassic right his podcast also nick thorburn of the band islands wrote the theme music and performed it and if you stick around all the way through the credits to the end of the episode i tell you a secret and this week the secret is that i read some hack that if you put dish soap on your shower floor and then baking soda and you let it sit a couple hours or overnight and then you come back the next day your grout has never been cleaner so i tried it y'all it works also be careful because it's slippery. Nobody needs to fall naked. I was on a date once where a guy told me about how he passed out in the shower because he had hemorrhoids so bad and he cracked his head open. And I was like, this is a lot of information. He also mentioned that he had a fiance, but he was planning on breaking up with her over the phone. And I was like, this is not going to go forward. My point is don't slip and fall in the shower, but sparkling grout, what a day maker. Okay, enjoy Black Mammalogist Week, and then get ready for a very creepy October. Not too creepy, but pretty creepy. Okay, bye-bye. Hackadermatology. Cryptozoology. Litology. Nanotechnology. Meteorology.